You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove, and I am joined by three other guests this morning. On my right, once again, I have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale. Uh, In front of me, I have uh, Mike Nola, who we will be hearing about uh, in just a moment, hearing some of his story. And then we also have Howard Quatch here as well. Howard is one of the newer members of our church. We'll be hearing from him more in a future podcast episode. Uh, Howard, um, good friend, good brother, graduate of Westminster Theological Seminary in Philly. And so we're really excited to have him here uh, sharing his insights. So uh, in this podcast episode, we're going to be jumping into Mark chapter three. We hope you had a chance to listen to Mark chapters one and two, which came out last week. Uh, Our intent here is uh, to give you insights into Mark chapter three and to dialogue about insights from the gospel of Mark. We will not be reading uh, this chapter, but we hope that we can be uh, specific enough, giving you verses and everything so that you can follow along either in the car or if you're able to have your Bible open while we're uh, working through this, that would be great. So before we jump into Mark chapter three, though, uh, we want to hear from Mike a little bit. So Mike is here. Uh, to share a little bit about his story and also about um, some of his uh, doctorate studies. He's done some doctorate work in uh, New Testament and uh, just wanted to hear from him about what that was like and uh, how God has used uh, his gifts in the church. And so, Mike, uh, could you tell us a little bit of your testimony of coming to know the Lord and then what led you to doing um, New Testament PhD work? Sure. Well, I was born into a Christian family, so I don't remember the first time I heard Jesus' name or the gospel message. It came so early, and it was just a natural part of our lives. Uh, it was also an Italian immigrant family, so we, we had some ethnic things to deal with. Uh, but um, yeah, So I, I grew up in that environment. When I got to be uh, 12, I remember a sermon where someone was talking about getting to an age of accountability that made me very nervous. So I asked my mother what that age was, and she said, oh, I think it's like age 13. And I went, oh, good, I've got another year to skate. (laughs) So then uh, (laughs) when I was 13, uh, there was an evangelist who came to our church and um, did a revival uh, series. And it was at that point that, you know, I was feeling conviction from sin. Uh, and recognized the need to have Jesus in my life. So that's uh, when I became a Christian. I in- invited Jesus into my heart, and uh, that's that's been my life ever since. Yeah. There were, um, you know, after uh, high school, college, um, I, I would say there were times when I probably was n- not as enthusiastic of, about the, the gospel. Uh, and um, then I was, after college, I was drafted into the army. Uh, after that was over, um, I remember coming back home and I just had this deep desire to know more about the Bible. Mm-hmm. And there was just something about it. when I, Whenever I would read it, which was constantly, it seemed like every other sentence would leap off the page at me. And mm-hmm. like, uh, I've been reading this my whole life and I'm, I'm just discovering it now. And I remember uh, reading, going to bed, I would, I would fall asleep with the Bible on my chest, which was great because when I woke up in the morning, it was right there waiting for me. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, at that point in my life, I had I had no responsibilities. I was single. Um, I had no debt, and I had the GI Bill, 
So I, I said to myself, if I if there's ever a time to get more serious about studying the Bible, this is it. So I enrolled in, in the uh, Wheaton Graduate School and did a master's degree in New Testament, uh, which was a tremendously great program. Uh, in fact, if my three degrees, that's the one where I got the real education. Mm. That that one pushed me harder than the other two put together. Mm. And I also met my wife there, so that was an added bonus. And indeed. And then after uh, after graduation, um, sometime later, we decided to to pursue a doctoral studies. Uh, and again, the GI Bill was a was a really helpful thing there. So. Uh, we went on to Aberdeen, Scotland, uh, where I studied the New Testament again, this time uh, primarily Luke. Uh, and my my uh, mentor there was uh, Howard Marshall, I. Howard Marshall, who was, uh, I would say, probably the most noteworthy Lucan scholar of his day. He's gone home to be with the Lord a few years ago. So that was, that was a real thrill for me. Um, and also while I was there, you know, one of the spiritually enhancing things was that there was a, uh, a crowd of American scholars uh, who were there to study as well. And every day, some of us would get together for lunch and talk about what we were doing, encourage each other spiritually. Mm. That was really a wonderful growth period for me. Mm. So in a nutshell, that's pretty much. Yeah. Uh, that's, wonderful. <clears throat> that's wonderful. That's um, wonderful. So uh, what. Uh, one question I had when you were describing growing up in the church and Italian uh, family, what tradition did you did you grow up in? Uh, what were the churches like that you grew up in? Well, this was uh, this hmm, I don't know if you call it a conference of churches. I guess we could call it. It's called the CCNA, Christian Church of North America, which was a Pentecostal group. Okay, and uh, it's kind of amusing to me when uh, my American counterparts were learning songs like uh, "Jesus Loves All the Children of the World." I was I was singing the same tune, but with the words "Jesus loves all the Italians," <laughs> and then rather red and yellow, black and white, we would name various regions of Italy, and then end up with "Jesus loves all the Italians." Oh man! So it was it was really specific. Wow, that is very specific. Um, no less true, just more specific, right? Yes. <laughs> well, well the, um, the evangelistic outreach of this group was to Italian immigrants, so that sure. it made sense in yeah. context, but yeah. it certainly wasn't very global thinking. Sure, that's right. Uh, well, so since uh, since you uh, got your PhD from uh, Aberdeen, uh, how has God led you to use your teaching gifts and abilities uh, in his church? Well, I've actually pursued a career along different lines. I'm a healthcare administrator and hoping to retire <laughs> in a few years. Uh, but in the church, uh, I've done a significant amount of teaching over the years. Uh, I've been an elder um, and, you know, led groups, uh, done that sort of thing. Uh, I've also participated to a minor degree uh, in music ministry. Mm. So that's that's an interest of mine as well. And I, I was also an adjunct at Reformed Theological Seminary. Oh, really? Which, which campus? Uh, Washington, D.C. Okay. And what were you teaching there? Uh, Luke Acts, and I also tutored Greek. Okay. Well, that's great. Well, it was, must have been before my time, but yeah. would have loved to have you there. Um, really grateful for all the insights that you bring here at Shady Grove, and I've enjoyed some of the conversations we've had. I've kind of picked up on, um, you know, whenever Charlie's preaching and he gets into the Greek, I, I kind of think to myself, Mike has been here, maybe. <laughs> Charlie's having, you know, I know sometimes he talks about the conversations he's had with you, and uh, just really grateful for your insights and um, the knowledge and the, the breadth that you bring here uh, to Shady Grove. So uh, although you studied 
Uh, Luke, specifically, uh, I know you have uh, a ton of amazing insights on the Gospel of Mark. So last question for you here before we jump in. Uh, what do you think makes the Gospel of Mark unique from the other Gospel accounts? And why do you think it is important for Christians to study the Gospel of Mark today? Well, I, the primary thing is, you know, it, it's a part of our canon. And sometimes when I'm feeling arrogant, I, I come back to this. Nothing that I ever write will make its way into the Bible. But for as long as it's a Bible, Mark's going to be there. <laughs> Amen. That's good. <clears throat> and why do you think it's um, so why do you think it's important for Christians to study Mark? What, what can we gain from studying Mark today? Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things is, as you know, Ben, over the last hundred years, Mark has really gotten a lot of attention in the academic realm. Before that, it was pretty much ignored. But one of the things that um, that's come to me uh, recently, uh, actually via uh, RT France, Dick France, mm -hmm. is that um, we need to understand that Mark was not an academic polemic, and he wasn't writing so that he could participate in a debate. Mark was a pastor, mm -hmm. and if you lose sight of that, you lose sight of what he was doing. He was he was putting the gospel into a record so that Christians could be enriched by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And we got into some of that um, a little bit last week, talking about the pastoral tone, uh, perhaps even some of Peter's influence there in Mark uh, as well. So, well, thank you for those insights, uh, Mike. Glad that you're here, and Mike will be with us this morning. And then we'll be returning again in uh, future weeks as well. So we're really glad to have you here. Uh, well, let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 3. And let's just start with kind of a big picture overview of uh, chapter 3. So chapter 3 is coming on the heels of, in chapter 2, we had these four kind of conflict narratives. And uh, the beginning of chapter 3 ends that series with a fifth conflict narrative that Jesus has with the religious authorities. Um, so he gets into this conflict narrative and... Uh, and then in chapter three, we also have um, he his family seems to reject him or not understand his mission. Uh, we also have evil spirits confessing that he is the son of God. Uh, very interesting. And we also see that religious outsiders love him. Right. So we have all sorts of um, different characters here. We have the authorities. We have his family. We have evil spirits. We have uh, religious outsiders love him. He's calling his 12 apostles to himself. And uh, so despite the opposition that we see in this chapter, we still see that Jesus is on the move, right? Uh, so kind of big picture, uh, what does chapter three tell us about Jesus and his kingdom? And what implications does that have for Christians and churches today? So big picture, what does chapter three tell us about Jesus and his kingdom? And what implications does that have for Christians and churches today? I'm going to start with uh, you, Howard. Sure. Um... Wow, with all those uh, different like cast of characters involved here, um, it is uh, kind of difficult to summarize that. But what it seems like uh, the the kingdom of God coming in Jesus, he he has a mission, and his allegiance is to his Father, mm -hmm. and for the sake of the kingdom, and um, and that. It's, I think what stands out, or one of the things that stood out to me is that there's clearly evil mm. in the world and that our, the world in which Jesus lived is soaked in the supernatural. Mm. Um, and so 
with eyes to see and ears to hear, um, that I think has is one of the implications for me personally lately, mm. as I've had a chance to the privilege to go through the verses slowly one at a time. Yeah. And, um, and that he's with that pastoral tone, yeah. uh, Jesus still stands firm with what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Reminds me a lot of Psalm 119 of the, um, the writer there regularly recounting his opposition and yet he's still praising God that I still love your law. Uh, your ways are still my ways. Mm -hmm. So it, um, it rem it's psalmic yeah. in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Howard. I love what you said there about um, he lives in a world saturated with the spiritual. I think that's what you said. And we've talked about this a few times at Shady Grove, how our culture is conditioning us to have a very closed box on nothing outside of the material. And Christians often are influenced by that. And we may, you know, confess Jesus, but we're very, our spiritual antennas are not very strong. We're not very attuned to kind of what's happening outside of us, not having that open. So I love that, that thought that you had there uh, about that. Uh, Charlie, let's go to you. What, what do you think big picture chapter three is telling us here? Yeah. Just playing on what Howard is saying that the soaked in the supernatural, I think was, and, um, Boy, you certainly see that in this chapter that there's tension, and the tension is very much tied to the devil. Um, he's given the uh, disciples the authority to cast out demons. Mm. Um, there's a, you know, you get the sense that the inner the inner ring of the uh, authorities up in Jerusalem they send down their their highest ranked officials, these scribes, and they come down and to make a legal. Uh, you know, indictment, and they determine that Satan's casting out Satan, you know. I mean, they got it all wrong. They think he's, it's Beelzebub. And uh, so you just see great tension in this chapter of G Jesus. Uh, it's really a battle of authorities. Mm. And it's an, uh, the authorities that are battling in this chapter are, first of all, you have the authority of the Pharisees, that they've been the, the reigning uh, authority, when we speak and we determine how the Sabbath is to be, is to be observed, we're the authority. And Jesus comes along and says, Son of Man is, is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then it looks like this guy at the beginning of the chapter might be a plant. You know, this guy with the withered hand. This might have been a setup. And certainly they're, they're watching to see if he's going to heal him. And this is an authority against authority. And the bigger authority is going to win. And Jesus just does it back down and he's now the authority and now they got to get rid of him mm -hmm. and uh so we're just seeing this great tension but to me what's compelling at the end of the chapter is just getting us to think about well, where are we in our allegiance because twice it, it's mentioned that the uh family is on the outside mm -hmm. and that the, that the crowd is sitting around him but but here the closest to him his mother and his brothers are on the outside looking in and they think mm -hmm. he's crazy. The scribes think he's, you know, it's a Beelzebub. The Pharisees think he's a lawbreaker. Mm -hmm. Every, and the only one who gets it right theologically is the demons. <laughs> and they're saying, you're the son of God, which is this great theme of the book. Yeah. But it's the crowds that are, that are crowding him and they want to hear more. And so it's just begging us to keep reading. Yeah. 
Yeah. Mike, anything to add to that? Well, I was going to say, um, Jesus never got a honeymoon period. Mm. Once once he started his ministry, <laughs> there was opposition from all kinds of quarters, yeah. as Charlie and Howard have both mentioned. Uh, so, you know, once uh, <laughs> once yeah. he comes out of the starting gate, it's opposition after opposition. Yeah, there were there were no gift baskets waiting for him when he started public ministry, <laughs> as there was when I came here to Shady Grove. There was no <laughs> no sweet welcome um, waiting for him. Yeah. One thing that jumped out to me, you know, um, reading this, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but I kind of in my, um, I think in my reading, I normally skip over, what is it, verses um, 12 to 19 or so when he appoints the 12. It kind of at first glance just reads to me um, like a list of names, right? And I kind of would just skim through that. But what really jumped out to me this time is uh, in verse 14, where it says he appointed the 12 so they might be with him. Right before he gets into what he appointed them for, which is mm -hmm. preaching and casting out demons, it says he appointed 12 so that they might be with him. That really jumped out to me, uh, reading Mark chapter three and then connecting that with the end of the chapter, uh, when the family's on the outside and, and he looks at those who are inside with him and he says, behold, these are my, you know, brothers, mothers, sisters, my family. Um, and it just seems to be this starting to see this emphasis on discipleship as being with Jesus. Right, being with Jesus. That just really jumped out to me this time, uh, reading through chapter three. So uh, let's look at verses one, one through six. Um, I think one through six really ends on this very fascinating note of uh, the Pharisees partnering with the Herodians uh, to plot to destroy Jesus, because here you have two groups who really had no business uh, fraternizing with one another, and yet they come into allegiance with one another to uh, achieve a common goal. So in verses 1 to 6, Jesus is healing the man with the withered hand, um, the Pharisees plot with the Herodians. So what exactly is going on here? Who are the Herodians and what led the Pharisees to making a partnership with them in order to um, destroy Jesus? So maybe, Mike, let's start with you. Well, the Herodians were um, a political family um, and they were supporting originally Herod the Great, and they had great power. In fact, they were the the party that put the chief priest in place mm. up until um, about AD, uh, 87. And then later on uh, in the late 30s, they would have that power again. Uh, so they had a lot of political influence. Mm -hmm. um, what they wanted to do was to restore one of the Herods to David's throne. Yeah. And... Uh, the thing that they had in common with the Pharisees was, was they both wanted the Romans out, mm. um, but for, for different uh, reasons and for different ways to do it. The Herodians wanted um, somebody in Herod's family to be sitting on David's throne, and the Pharisees were looking forward, ironically, to a Messiah right. who would sit on that throne. Right. So that's that's what they had, that's why they were you know that's what they had something in common you know my my enemy's enemy is my friend kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. So not exactly the best motivation for partnership. Certainly, sort of some dark ends there. Um, Charlie, you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, his answer was really good. <laughs> yeah. um, I do just say that common enemies make strange bedfellows, and we're yeah. seeing the. Jesus asked the question, uh, is it lawful to save life or, or to destroy or to do good or to kill on the Sabbath? And he doesn't answer the question. He answers it with an action of healing. Mm -hmm. But what we're seeing is 
who really are the Sabbath breakers is that now they're going out to plot on the Sabbath to do destroy and to yeah. do evil. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they are the true, the boomerang has come around and caught them and they don't even see it. Yeah. Yeah. Howard, anything to add to that? Yeah. It reminds me of uh, Psalm 2, this wicked collusion yeah. right? um, of the nation's raging and the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Mm. Doesn't sound like great counsel, but you can understand why. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, as I was digging into this uh, passage, I found a couple historical references to get some context on it, some historical documents from Jesus's day of sort of attitudes towards healing on the Sabbath. Uh, and so there are some documents that basically were trying to describe, you know, if you do anything extra to seek healing, it's considered work. But if you do something like you normally would and the byproduct is healing, it's okay. But don't go and intentionally seek healing. So, for example, one document said, um, if his teeth pain him, he may not suck vinegar through them, but he may take vinegar after his usual fashion. And if he is healed, he is healed. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, if you take vinegar, right, and you suck it through your teeth and be like mouthwash, that's work. But if you just drink it like a drink and it happens to have the byproduct of healing, that's fine. Right. And so you just see like these, this, these strange rules that prevented people from seeking healing. And so you can see like Jesus's anger right at that point, right? Like, are you guys kidding me? You know, like, are you kidding me? And he asked this question um, to them. And clearly it seems like in verse four, he's linking his fate to the, to the fate of the man with the bad hand. So he says, you know, to do good or to do evil or to save life or to kill. Well, the first part of that question seems to be directed towards healing the man, but then saving life or to kill kind of seems to be tied to Jesus's fate, right? Um, of course, he eventually will be killed uh, by the religious by the re- religious leaders. So, uh, yeah, just for context, what's going on there? And so, of course, he heals the man, and we see the Pharisees set off to partner with the uh, Herodians. Um, just thinking about that, that verse, verse six, has really been striking to me. Thinking about our own day today, and um, how quick you know we can be to have this "enemy of my enemy is my friend" attitude. Uh, and making allegiances with people that maybe we shouldn't be because we don't like somebody else. Um, David Brooks in his uh, recent book, uh, The Second Mountain, uh, would call this tribalism, right? And he calls tribalism the dark twin of community where your bonds are not forged on mutual love, but on mutual hatred, right? So both the Pharisees and the Herodians had a mutual hatred and they formed a a community around that rather than a, a community formed around love. And so very, very striking, I think, to see uh, what the Pharisees are willing to do to get rid of Jesus. So, you know, Ben, the uh, the example that you gave about the swishing vinegar through your teeth, I find very amusing. But can you imagine Jesus having to put up with this nonsense when he was bringing the, he was bringing the kingdom of God to them? Mm. <clears throat> yeah. It sounds like, like what you said earlier, Mike, uh, there's a lot of um, unlearning that needs to be done with respect to something as um, essential for creation as the Sabbath, yeah. right? And not just for creation, but the one of the like the primary metaphors with which Israel as a nation understands their identity. Yeah. Um, and uh, the like from a purity perspective, and especially in our 
contemporary time like this maybe we're post-purity culture I, I don't know I, I wasn't kind of I wasn't a Christian during that era of uh, of Christianity but um, I can understand um, how how they tried how the Pharisees tried to quote-unquote shepherd um, the people uh, to use more preventative measures um, of you know like keeping like instead of um, getting to the heart or intent of the Sabbath to for life and rejuvenation it's like what what are the things that we can set in place so that it's easier to not um get to that point of breaking the sabbath yeah um the fence inside the fence so to speak. yeah very concerned with detail as we've been saying they're very concerned yeah. with detail um, yeah there so let's uh move on to real quick to verses 7 to 12 uh where it's kind of a maybe a transitionary uh account here of the we, we see the crowds really really crowding on jesus and um thinking about that seen more um one commentator i was reading says you know the the images of jesus as being surrounded by lambs and children all the time are really a skewed picture of what it was like uh for jesus right and the commentator said um a better picture would be the arrival of a popular leader jostled by crowds and hassled by reporters Mm. is more appropriate for what it was like for jesus so they're crowding around him uh pressing crushing him i kind of have this the, the imagery of of walmart has a you know a macbook a couple macbook pros and it's it's thanksgiving and it's now <laughs> six o'clock yeah and the doors have opened and you see these video footage of people actually fighting to yeah. get to the you know the valued possession you know? yeah yeah so we see the crowds but then we have this remarkable um you know, moment here where uh, the demon, right, in um, whenever the unclean spirit saw him, verse 11, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So we were talking about this a little bit last week with, in Mark, there's this, what we call the messianic secret, or just uh, Jesus seems very regularly to either tell those whom he's healed, or he tells the spirits and so on, uh, not to make him known, right, not to tell anyone. So, uh, Mike, did you have anything to add, uh, maybe just commenting on Mark's emphasis here on the messianic secret uh, that we see throughout the throughout the gospel? Oh, I think just to say that uh, Howard mentioned this a little bit ago as well, and that is um, there were a lot of misconceptions that Jesus had to dispel before he could actually let people know what the what the gospel was about and, and the kingdom of God and the kingdom ethics that were about to break in with it. Mm-hmm. And if, um, if the message got out too quickly before he was ready to say, I'm the son of God mm-hmm. uh, in a public proclamation sort of way, that could have had the potential of disrailing uh, a part of his ministry. So, it, um, you know, Jesus had to be very careful that the timing was done on his authority and yeah. not when somebody else wanted to. And we, we find also um, there's another example uh, where um, Herod uh, Antipas wants to see him prematurely. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is in Luke's gospel. And so uh, Jesus goes into Herod Philip's territory until the pressure dies down a little bit and then comes back. Because if Herod had been able to um, arrest him or uh, you know do, do something untoward uh, before it was time, well couldn't really have that happen and have the gospel roll out the way that it was going to roll out. 
And yeah. Jesus had to be in charge of that. Yeah. Can Can I ask Mike a question on this text sure. here with the knowing your Greeks much better than mine? I, when you look at this in English, it looks like the demons are worshiping Jesus because it says they fell down before him. But it's not the worship word. It's prospipto. And that's the idea of falling down, of just like tripping or, you know, or even stumbling. Do you, I was curious to get your comment on that. Yeah, I would see this not as worship, but as um, almost being repulsed. Mm-hmm. Um, they, like thrust they, backwards almost, yeah, or thrust yeah. down. They, they can't. Overpowered. Yeah, they can't help themselves in his presence to be overpowered by his presence. Ah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That, that does kind of maybe echo back to um, John the Baptist in the early chapter mm-hmm. saying, someone stronger than I yeah. will be coming. Yeah. So strong. We are seeing power and authority conflict in every yep. every pericope here. Yep. That's right. Uh, well, let's move on to the next one, verses 13 to 19. So as I um, was saying a moment ago, I, I can, uh, I think in the past, I've tended to really uh, pass by this very quickly. Um but let's slow down and take a look. So Jesus calls the 12 to be his apostles. Uh, and let's focus in especially on maybe the significance of 12, right? So knowing that Mark is interested in portraying Jesus as fulfillment of some Old Testament expectations, um, what is the significance to the number 12 here in, in calling the 12 apostles? Um, Charlie, let's go ahead and start with you. I would think just because you have, you know, 12 tribes, and here you have 12 apostles. It is interesting that John makes a big deal about this at the very end of the story, which is Revelation 21. Mm-hmm. And we're told about Jerusalem, and it, it actually says that the city was coming down out of heaven from God. And then verse 12, it said, It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east gate, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Mm. Yeah. Howard. Um, yeah, with Jesus, Son of God, mm-hmm. um, a title used for the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. The king is back. Um, is here for his kingdom. Mm-hmm. That kingdom was fractured, mm-hmm. right? but he's here to unify that kingdom. And no, I think there's both the number 12 itself and then also the crowds from which they came earlier in chapter three. Geographically, it's, it pretty much just puts all the, the Google pins on the Google map that that if you connect the dots it gives us israel like yeah. northern and southern kingdom together yeah so yeah the king's here to reunify mm-hmm. mike uh, i'm not a big fan of numerology but <laughs> this this 12 is significant and it was to the early church because in acts chapter one after judas iscariot is dead yeah they, um, they spend a lot of quality time praying and choosing a 12th disciple to take his place, mm-hmm. who was Mattathias. But then right after that, for the whole rest of the book, you never hear his name again. Mm. So it's not that he never did anything important. It's just that it was super important to the early church to have 12 yeah. in, in that, you know, to have somebody in Judas' spot. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I found a couple things I thought were really interesting. Um, again, looking at this in more detail, uh, one commentator point out, pointed out another historical document that I think came from the, the Qumran community, which is where, of course, we get the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and there was a scroll that's just called the Temple Scroll. And in the Temple Scroll, it talked about how their expectation was that the future king of Israel uh, would appoint 12 princes, 12 priests, and 12 Levites to be his council with whom he would make decisions. And so there seemed to even be, at the time, like an expectation of 12 uh, to come. And um, whether or not, you know, Jesus is, uh, you know, in line with that, there was an expectation of 12. There was still this 12, right, for the 12 tribes. And so Jesus coming, um, uh, appointing the 12 apostles uh, seems to be connected with that 12 tribe idea. I had another comment from another commentator I thought was worth reading. So I think this is really a good summary. This is um, from James Edwards commentary. And he says, um, Jesus summons of the 12 in fellowship and service to himself signifies a reconstituting of Israel, according to Matthew 19, 28 and Luke twenty two thirty, And then, of course, the revelation passage that Charlie read, uh, the 12 are not only an extension of Jesus's earthly ministry, but their function extends beyond time when they will sit in judgment over Israel. The call of the 12 was surely significant to Mark's first Roman readers, both Gentiles and Jews. For Gentiles, it is a reminder that salvation is from the Jews. That is, that the only Savior proclaimed to the world is one prepared for in Abraham and now is present in Jesus. And for Jews, likewise, the Twelve is a reminder that Israel fulfills its destiny only in the fellowship and service of Jesus. I thought that was a good summary of what we see here in the Twelve. Um, but I don't know if any of you guys had any just like insights, uh, anything that jumped out to you in who he calls and the names here. I love, of course, the Sons of Thunder, right? It's always funny to me. Like, I don't have any comment on that. But uh, also just, you see the range of his disciples, right? You have kind of the the broad middle. So maybe like Peter, James, Andrew, John kind of represent the respectable middle, right? But then you have opposites and extremes. You have Matthew, the tax collector, and Simon, the zealot, right? One who would have been viewed as having sold out to the Roman authorities, and one who wanted to overthrow the Roman authorities, right? And both of them are called into the same tight community of close fellowship. Yeah, that'll preach. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's just amazing to me. Um, and it's I, I was, oh, it is. And I was thinking yesterday, it really hit me. Like, I wonder what some of those campfires were like. You know, when maybe uh, Matthew and Simon started going at it, and what did Jesus do? Right? Like, I, I, you want to know? Like, what did Jesus? How did he respond to their arguments about Rome and? what their attitude towards Rome should be. So anyone have any like insights there on, you know, who Jesus calls and the names there? I wish we knew more about some of these people. Yes. Yeah. Uh, because uh, a handful of them are just unknown to us because their stories weren't written down. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and of course, you know, that Mark tells us about Judas. Now the one who mm -hmm. um, betrayed, uh, which is, I believe the same word used in John, uh, in, um, chapter one, verse 14 about John. Um, so uh, kind of a linking back to that. And, and of course it's foreshadowing Jesus's destiny. So, um, well, let's move on and look at really, uh, verses, um, like 20 to 30 or so. Um, we have two things happening here. Um, well, 22 to like 35 now. So 20 to the end of the chapter, a couple things happening. We have Jesus and his family, um, but then we also have this, it's interrupted by this conflict um, with the Pharisees over whether or not he's possessed. 
right? So uh, we see when he's being accused of being possessed, Jesus responds to this parable about a kingdom divided and the plundering of the strong man's house. And so let's take this, you know, as a whole of you know, this conflict with the family, the conflict with the Pharisees, and then back to the family. Uh, what do we learn here about Jesus? What do we learn here about his kingdom? Uh, Mike, you want to jump in on this? Well, I think one of the things um, that we learn about Mark is that he doesn't smooth over things and he doesn't try to give us the sanitized version of whatever the story is that he's telling. He, he just lays it out the way that it is. I mean, who would be reading a story about the Messiah and then say, oh, and by the way, his family thought he was insane. Uh, uh, but he, he doesn't keep that away from us. He, he yeah. puts it out there so that you get the unvarnished picture of what actually happened there. Yeah. I think that speaks highly for him as a writer. Yeah. Could you speak a little bit to, um, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but speak to the technique that Mark is using here with going from one story about the family, then to the being interrupted and then back to the story of the family. Like what, what's that technique and what is Mark trying to get across in doing that? Yeah, that technique goes by a couple of names. Um, we talked about this earlier. Yeah. <laughs> a sandwich uh, is what sometimes, probably the most popular way of describing it. And that is you start with a story. You interject another story, and then you come back to the original story. Yeah, um, it happens in in Matthew and Luke as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, did they get it from Mark, or was it just a common occurrence in the way that you tell stories in the first century in Palestine? Yeah, uh, my guess is that it's the latter. Yeah, uh, and that you know Mark wasn't inventing a new genre or right. a new way of telling stories, but he was using. Um, a means of communication that people would have understood. Yeah. Uh, the same way that you and I would know what a sonnet is as opposed to a limerick. We, we sure. get that. You know? I think we would also say a good movie, a good TV series or has the same idea. It'll start with something and then it goes back or it shifts to something else. But then it ties it in at the end and, the, and this middle piece is actually very helpful commentary on the other. And we see that happening a lot. And I think we just have to look for it in the Gospels and realize they were way ahead of us. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, and Mike, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also a great technique to link two stories. And by linking two stories, we're getting kind of a whole new point that maybe we wouldn't get mm -hmm. uh, with the stories on their own. So there seems to be this theme here of Jesus cannot be bound, right? He cannot be bound by his family. Uh, he cannot be, he's certainly not bound by Satan. In fact, he's the most powerful one who binds Satan. He's the one who destroys and binds Satan, right? He can't be held back from his mission. Um, so, Howard, looking at this middle part here of the sandwich, um, the turkey and the cheese, uh, with the conflict with the Pharisees here, what is like? What's Jesus getting at here? What's kind of the irony of um, you know maybe the irony of the Pharisees' accusation? But then, how does Jesus respond with the parable? Yeah, I think. <clears throat> Um, the, uh, well, let me start with the parables. Uh, I think it just shows like <clears throat> how absurd, uh, their answers are, uh, and that, and that when, um, you know, when the fan, when the family is thinking, well, Jesus family is thinking, you know, he seems like besides himself, maybe he's delusional. Well, you got, uh, you got the 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 demons thinking that he's dangerous. Mm -hmm. So maybe um, maybe they're actually right. Like they recognize that power, uh, but 
I'm sorry, the, um, uh, the, uh, the scribes, I'm sorry, the scribes. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, with the, with the parables, um, they, they can't, they can't seem to, they, again, the soaked with the supernatural, not having eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, and that at this point, maybe he's so dangerous, right? That they can only resort to an evil power. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it's important for us not to miss the the point of the incredible theological point that Jesus is making is that as the bigger story of scripture tells us that we are uh, under the prince of the power of the air. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers and that uh, we are powerless to come to God on our own because we have been uh, under the, the power of of the devil and obviously the demons are these people that are demonically possessed it's, it's even worse but jesus is saying i've come to plunder satan's kingdom yeah and that's where we were and so jesus is is making a real powerful point that i have the power to and i've kind of used the analogy before of a three-story townhouse and that you're on the bottom floor and you say, oh, I got free will. It's like free will, nothing. You can't make it to the top floor where God is because Satan runs the second floor. And he's put a, a lid and you can't even get all to the first floor. So Jesus comes down from the third floor, comes down and kicks Satan's behind on the second floor, ties him up, goes down to the first floor, grabs you and brings you up to the third floor. You weren't going anywhere to the second floor yeah. or beyond where you were until somebody can bind the strong man. And so we see this great theology of the power the first-rate power taking over the second-rate power that you the third-rate power can be brought to jesus yeah yeah and i just i think it's just you know so wild to me that they would say you know he must be possessed by satan if he's casting out demons and you know i love jesus's response like can the kingdom divided itself against itself stand? Like, what are you talking about? You know, like, what was his facial expression? Like, really, guys? Like, it's not like any logical sense. Um, well, let's look at how he ends here in verses 28 to 29. I think um, when he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So let me read that real quick. In verses 28 to 29 of chapter 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Uh, I wanted to talk about this a little bit because I don't know about you guys, if you've ever struggled with this, but um, pastorally, I've had a surprising number of conversations with Christians who are really worried that they've committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. And it often comes in uh, maybe a season of guilt. So I've talked to a number of guys who, who think, you know, Ben, if I, if I can't, um, you know, if Jesus isn't saving me from my pornography addiction, or if I can't defeat my pornography addiction, could it be that he's abandoned me because I've committed at some point a sin against the Holy Spirit? Like there's this like racking paranoia and sense of guilt, uh, along with that, this fear, like, what if I'm, what if I've committed this, right? And what if, what if Jesus has abandoned me because I've committed the, you know, unpardonable sin, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I wanted to hear from you guys just um, why do you think, I don't know the right order to take these questions in, but I guess what is the blasphemy of, against the Holy Spirit? And why do you think so often Christians struggle to 
work through this for themselves. So what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and why are so many Christians afraid of committing it? Um, Charlie, we'll start. I would just say, first of all, we need to nuance very carefully because we sin against the Holy Spirit every day. And the Bible speaks of us grieving the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. And that's for believers. And we do grieve the Spirit of God when we hold on to a grudge uh, in in the context there. We speak... You know, it says we're to not let any unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to uh, their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And, and and then it says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's like, man, I have said so many words all the time where I've grieved the Spirit. So there's a big difference between grieving the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The, and so I think for Christians, I always try to let them know that uh, if you think that you've committed it, then you know you haven't because it's for people that are have so clearly, they are attributing the work of God, a clear work of God that is so innately obvious to them that this is a work of God, and yet they are clearly attributing it to the work of the devil. And that is such a, uh, a hardening that God is saying. You're, you're, so, you're doing this so intentionally that you're, this is your, your you've, committed this uh, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Mike? Uh, else, <clears throat> elsewhere in Scripture, we read about um, people who are uh, in the torment of hell, with uh, described by weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That is, um, that's, that's a misunderstood phrase. It's not that th- these are people who are sorry, and they're making an apology, and they're repentant, and they're begging God for forgiveness. It's really quite the opposite. You know, those terms mean people who are so adamantly opposed to God, they can't even talk about him unless it's through gritted teeth. And mm. they're just, they're adamantly opposed to anything good. Yeah. And, and, and what happens is mm. when evil becomes known as good and good as evil, that there's, there's a confusion there that just pushes people to a point where, or they push themselves to a point where they're no longer in a position to be forgiven for what they've done. There is a point of no return. Yeah. I mean, and if there wasn't, there would be no hell because people in hell, from what we can read in the New Testament, would like to be out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you uh, think they would like to be out? Well, you get that from uh, in Luke 16 with the rich man and yeah. Lazarus. The, the rich man wanted to send somebody to his brothers so that they didn't have to come there. Yeah. So I maybe I don't know specifically that he would want to get out, but he certainly didn't want his brothers to join him. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be this, um, you know, uh, and of course, elsewhere in the New Testament, we hear about different um, folks apostatizing. And uh, I think it's in, uh, is it in First John where they went out from us and we learned that they were yeah. never of us, right? Um, and then you have that uh, curious passage in Hebrews 6 as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but there seems to be, to your point, Mike, um, a heart can become so hardened that is not only confused that sees good as evil and evil as good, um, but that would get to a point of saying, of ascribing Jesus's work to the devil, mm-hmm. right? To be so far gone and you have your heart so hardened and so dark that you ascribe Jesus's work to the devil. And that definitely, I mean, that seems to be most directly what Jesus is addressing here, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Like you are, your heart and your mind is so darkened that you're calling me the devil. 
And that would be this point of, and so to Charlie's point, like if you're worried about committing this, this, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that you're not, you're definitely not there right? because you're, you don't want to grieve the spirit. Right. And so encouraging Christians um, to see that. Uh, Howard, you want to add anything to this? Sure. If, if, if you like the, you general person are like in your um, worldview, acknowledge that there is a devil, um, then I wonder how far off you are in acknowledging Christ or or some like worldview. Uh, so this is not like the original context I'm talking about. Like today, if you had a conversation and someone um, says that what Jesus is doing is from the devil, uh, how much of that is just being facetious or tongue in cheek? But if they, I say this because before I became a Christian, when I was uh, still participating in Bible studies, <laughs> I, uh, I, when I, when I learned about the exclusivicity—that's a mouthful in the morning—of uh, Jesus being the only way, I, uh, I started thinking about my friends and family who mm. were not Christians, and um, uh, I, I, I guess I started gritting my teeth uh, and said. If he is, if Jesus is the only way to salvation, then I would rather be in hell in your eyes mm. than believe in this stuff. Are you saying that like all these people that I love and care about and who love and care about me, um, I have to therefore believe that they're going to burn. Mm. And it's being soaked in the supernatural regardless of uh, my own acknowledgement of that reality, um, I got pricked and thought, wait a minute, if I believe in hell, then I don't want any one of us to be there. Mm. Uh, so I didn't profess faith necessarily at that moment, mm. but there maybe there is something about some kind of uh, acknowledgement of something very, very bad yeah. like hell. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, pastorally, just, this just reminds us that, um, sadly, you know, and, and there are some great books on this, and um, one of them is The New Gentle and Lowly um, by, by Dane Ortland. But sadly, many Christians today, I think, have really failed to grasp a full sense of assurance uh, of the forgiveness of their sins, of um, assurance of their salvation, communion with the Lord, communion with Christ, and can be easily rattled by uh, a bad week to then say, Oh, I must be outside the grace of God. If I could have a week like this, I must be outside the grace of God. And just pastor pastorally remembering that a lot of Christian ministry is reminding Christians, um, that his grace is sufficient for you. Right. Uh, reminding Christians that when we sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, um, and so, you know, a lot of, a lot of wonderful books on this. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't picked up gentle and lowly yet, really encourage you to do that. Um, so many people that I've given this book to who have been Christians their whole life have said, I've never, I've never heard this before. Um, we still, I think have some copies. If you, if you attend Shady Grove, I think we still have some copies outside in the red bin. Um, other great books on this are John Owen's, uh, communion with God. Very, very, very good. Um, 
Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, also very, very, very good. I don't know if you guys have any other book recommendations just to encourage Christians in the assurance of uh, their salvation. But yeah, uh, Book of Hebrews. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I do think that we need to take in all of Scripture and that it's like giving the right pill to the right people. Because sometimes people... Uh, your assurance is going to be shaken if, and the confession talks about this, you know, we commit some scandalous sin and, and it wounds us. Um, that may not be a bad thing for them to wrestle through that and to quickly, you know, just not let them work through the pain of what they've done. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Those are some good tears, and I, I think we might have been too quick in our day to run, rush out and tell them that it's it's okay, it's okay. You know, we all make mistakes, and you know, John three sixteen is true, and First John five twelve, and don't let this, you know. And sometimes we have to work through this process of working through this to, to really bear the fruits of repentance as well. So, yeah. Okay. I was going to say also in the church service, um, whenever we begin the service with the confession, a, a corporate confession of our sin, we always follow up with an assurance of pardon. Yes. So hopefully we're not giving people the message, you've sinned and that's the end of it. Right. Yeah. There's, there's pardon to come as well. Amen. That's right. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. Howard and I were having a conversation about that a little bit last night about, um, you know, even in the, our Christian preaching um, in the context of the liturgy of the service. And so we were talking about, you know, such an, when you can follow up your preaching with the Lord's Supper, as we're doing this Sunday, you know, regardless of the weight of the passage and what needed to be said, you know, in the preaching, you know, you're going through the Sermon on the Mount. It's kind of very like heavy on self-examination. Yeah. Like, am I in the kingdom or am I not? But then, you know, regardless of where you have to kind of put the plane down on the sermon, we come to the table together and we remember this is the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that was given for you. Come take and eat of it, right? And um, to come and eat and be fed. And so, yeah, seeing, I, I think that's a good point, Mike, in the context of the full full service. That's good. More than just the assurance of pardon spoken, but the very presence of right. our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, let's get to the end of chapter three here. So, you know, so there's, uh, I think it's 19 and 20. Uh, his family is looking for him, right? Or they think he's out of his mind, think he's crazy. Um, then there's the conflict with the scribes. Then it's back to the back to the family again. I think it's uh, you know your family's looking for you, uh, which we talked about. Um, we talked about this last week a little bit. The Greek word here, um, uh, zateo, z- zatein here, zateo, uh, and in Mark it's never used with a positive connotation. Um, so I think it's used uh, 10, okay. 10 times in Mark. So. Never with a positive connotation. So there's still this kind of this binding, restricting. They want to control Jesus. And Jesus responds with, you know, here is my family, right? He points to the ones who are with him um, and says, here is my family. So what do we learn here about the redemption, the fullness of the redemption we find in Christ? Who is his family? And what is the significance of that for us today? Charlie. First of all, just in a big picture, um, in the worship of mary that exists in in the roman catholic church that this is a good chapter to really wrestle with that that mark is putting his mary on the outside and not on the inside and she's tied in with those who think he's out of his mind she's not isolated from the family 
and and that she's a perpetual virgin. She clearly Jesus has brothers, and <clears throat> so we just see this is kind of a correction that we need the Word of God sometimes to speak in areas that this is an area that is uh, a sore spot in the mm-hmm. in the larger church today that this chapter speaks to. But for us, you know, this is really kind of the landing point. Is as I've been saying all along. I've been reading the, the gospel, looking at the questions, and then the answer seeing as a dialogue. And there's three questions in this text. And the last question is the question of who are my mother and, and my brothers? And that's how the chapter ends. And the answer is whoever does the will of, of God. He's my, he's my brother and sister and mother. Here you have his immediate family on the outside. Mm-hmm. And... Jesus doesn't say, if you're the child of one believing parent, you're okay. He doesn't say, if you're the child of believing parents, or if your uncle is a minister, or you're tied somehow to an inside track, you know, that you've got this. Here you have the very blood relatives of Jesus, and they're on the outside. So it's a real wake-up call that, that it's one thing to be in the covenant, but to be, in the, to be a child of God. To be born again, to be a, a, a follower of Jesus, we have to, uh, you know, trust and obey, repent and believe. And that's what Jesus is getting at here, is that he's the king, our allegiance must line up with him, and we must follow him and trust him. Yeah. This, this sandwich has been hard to chew on. <laughs> they all are. Yeah. <laughs> um, this one in particular... Especially uh, Ben bringing up the the gentle and lowly Savior mm-hmm. whom we follow, because uh, this uh, the way the uh, Mark and the Sandwich or maybe a mini chiasm, uh, how that's supposed to function is that they would maybe either mutually interpret each other or shed light, or maybe the middle part is supposed to be the main point. Mark can probably, uh, I'm sorry, Mike can probably hash out those details. Um, for us, but this family conversation, this family story is somehow related to something satanic. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking about power and opposition. Uh, so it's a little difficult at this point in the conversation or in the story to reconcile, at least in my mind right now, the gentle and lowly Jesus and this sandwich um, especially with with his family, people who are familial, mm-hmm. familiar, familiar. Uh, like, what is he saying about his family? Mm. Great question. What do you think, Mike? Uh, well, Howard and I were talking earlier about uh, Zacchaeus in uh, Luke chapter 19. That uh, paragraph ends with Jesus saying that he he had to come to his house because Zacchaeus was a son of Abraham. Mm. And a little before that, there was a woman that Jesus had healed, and his rationale for healing her was because she too was a daughter of Abraham. Mm. This is an idea that Paul's going to be picking up on and uh, expanding about uh, how believers are sons and daughters of Abraham. But they are also um, members of God's family, having been adopted uh, in, into the into the family. And so, one of one of the reasons that Jesus was here was to gather the children of Abraham and to reconcile 
um, those who were lost back to the family that they belong to, and that is God's family. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a there's a much bigger concept of what family is as opposed to the genetic connection that we have with people in our physical family. Yeah. Yeah, Howard, uh, when I, you know, we've been talking about this uh, before we were recording, but I have a, you know, my, I'm conditioned to not want to harmonize the gospels and not try and, oh, but let's just bring this in and, and remember. But I do think it's important, you know, Jesus is clearly making a point here, right? And I think it's a point that, he wants, he wants his mother and his family to learn because he loves them. Mm. And we see that. I, I do think we see that then at the end of the story when he's on the cross and who's left, but Mary, his mother and John. Right. And he says to John, behold your mother. Yeah. Right. And like it finally for them, it's clicked. Right. That family transcends um, like clearly he loves his mother. And so he wants to look out for her. So that's still a very important tie for him. Um, but it also transcends the bloodline. And now he's bringing John in to care for his mother uh, in his absence. And I think that's a beautiful picture. And maybe that would be a good like sort of conclusion to the conflict we see here is that they eventually get it. And then we see that gentle and lowly heart mm-hmm. you know, come through. But definitely right now you're like, what? Like, what is this? Right? Like, what? what is Jesus saying about his family? And clearly he's not... Um, think family's unimportant or anything like that um you know but he is maybe redefining the family within the spiritual community right right and he's making a new he's making a new community Uh, i want to move on real quick just for sake of time and just kind of talk maybe application now with chapter three we get to the end of chapter three we see this you know jesus saying behold here is my mother and my brother and my sister i think i think it's significant that he adds in sister here but uh, can't get into that right now. But he ends with this call of, you know, here's who, um, who my family. So we get to the end of this chapter now here, modern 21st century, 2020 Christians. Uh, what, what is chapter three calling us in our response to Christ? What is chapter three now calling us to today in our response um, to Christ? I'll start with you, Charlie. Well, this is powerful because, you know, you hear people say, before I came to Christ, my work was my everything, and I was a slave to my work. Or before I came to Christ, you know, I was, you know, addicted to some pleasure, whether it's drugs or, or sex. or I. You never hear anybody say, I, my, my loyalty was to my family. My family was everything. And all of these things that are good things, whether it be money or sex, <clears throat> they're good gifts, work, family. And I think that what he's getting at is that Jesus, the loyalty to Jesus is, is greater than any other loyalty and that family can be an idol. Mm-hmm. And we don't like to hear that in our circles, that we can actually be so devoted to family that the family is, you know, blood is thicker than water, whatever. And, and, and Jesus is ultimately calls for loyalty to him, even over immediate family members. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you're to neglect your family and now, you know, go off and, uh, you know, be working so hard at the church that you're not doing the things that scripture talks about with family, but it's to recognize that there is this loyalty that Jesus is calling that we can make an idol out of family 
just as much as we can make an idol out of work uh, or any other uh, issues of idolatry in our culture. Yeah. And maybe the other side of the coin of that as well, Charlie, I think that's a really good point. So we can idolize our family. I think many Christians too have experienced family trying to restrain their faith and kind of they, they come to sure. Christ and now their family members saying, why are you taking this Jesus thing so seriously? And I think that's this passage is also reassuring to Christians who have had to face that of like, no, stay on, stay on the path, continue following Christ. And uh, just as he could not be restrained by his family, you know, don't let your family, you know, restrain your faith and your allegiance to Christ. And either. the encouragement there is that if you have family that are unbelieving and you now have a new family yeah. and your family of the family of God in the church is this wonderful connection that that you know as he says you know he's my brother and sister and mother and that there is this new family that is formed and it's a it's an eternal family and we're going to sing the everlasting song together of hailing the power of jesus name that's right mike what do you think our response to jesus after reading chapter three well i think understanding that god had promised a, a messiah long before Jesus arrived on the scene, but does come to fruition. Jesus does arrive on the scene, and his goal is to take back uh, the kingdom that belongs uh, to God. Uh, the kingdom of God is what he comes to deliver to us. And once you understand that there's that cosmic struggle and that he has not only initiated a solution, but he's won that struggle mm. on our behalf, um, how could our loyalty not be to him? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Howard. Um, the uh, the loyalty, allegiance, especially uh, given the pastoral nature and tone of the letter. I'm thinking about the at the very end in chapter 16 with those who are astonished and yet afraid. Um, whatever you, whatever risks that you have to take of. Um, of the scandal of following someone who uh, who has allegedly died and rose from the grave and whatever risks you have to take to follow this Jesus that might be scandalous, mm -hmm. right? Doesn't make any sense. Um, uh, people might be attributing your, your faith to, I don't know, weird psychological reasons, right? Like, or just a crutch. Uh, but uh, he he is with you now. We know by his spirit, and so at this point in the story, it's like, yeah, keep keep listening to the story, and in your life, um, keep following him as uh, he called us to be with him through it. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of maybe summarizing what I've heard from everyone here. For me, I'm, when I finished this, you know, I, I kind of saw this as a individual and a communal response so individually you know there's in verse 14 here at the end there's this emphasis on being with jesus right and so as a disciple am i committed to being with jesus and you know as a pastor it's really easy for me to begin each day with just getting to work right coming and this is true i'm sure for everybody but coming to the coming to the church building you know which is no more spiritual than uh any other workplace and coming in here and I get to work right away. I'm answering emails and all these things. And 
uh, not really to, and, I, and then all of a sudden it's the end of the day and I'm like, man, I've just been task, so task oriented, but really thinking about what does it mean to do my everything this day, like in life with Jesus. So kind of recommitting to that idea. Uh, communally, as we've been talking about, there's this um, corporate aspect of being adopted into this new commu- you know, community of faith. And um, I think there's a convicting exhortation here that just as it's encouraging for those who come out of a family who maybe is unbelieving, they get, they receive a new family in the church. Well, the exhortation then for the church is, are we being a family? Right? Are, we, are we committed to the household of faith, uh, the family that the Lord has given to us? Um, I've recently been reading uh, the new book by uh, Dr. Erwin Ince, who's another pastor in our presbytery. He was a moderator of General Assembly uh, two years ago, I think. Uh, he wrote a new book called The Beautiful Community. And in that book, he uh, defines the beautiful community like this. He says, it is in beautiful community that we image God as we live out our love for him, doing what he commissioned to do. If you want to picture the fully finished image of God, you have to picture all of humanity unified in diversity under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I think just applying that to what we're talking about here, like to really have the fullness of who Christ is and what God is doing, it has to be done unified with others under you know, shared lordship of Jesus Christ. And so submitting to him and following him. And that's a Bob Inc. influence quote, if I've ever heard Oh, yeah. He quotes Bob Inc. a lot um, in that book. But great book. And um, uh, yeah, so hope you all enjoyed our insights here into Mark chapter three. We enjoyed sharing them. Uh, we will be back uh, next week. We'll make a recording uh, for Mark chapter four. And again, these episodes come out every Wednesday morning. Uh, please do, if you're enjoying this podcast, uh, rate us on your podcast platform. That would be helpful. Then also please uh, pass it along and share it with a friend. We'd love to get uh, the word out there and uh, these insights that we're digging in here in the gospel of Mark. So until next time, thanks everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care.